Hello there, welcome back to This Human Life. I'm Melissa, and I am going to continue reading from the book This Human. Um, and uh, this is intended as a bit of a um, the author's notes. <laughs> so as I'm reading, I'll think of things, um, the reasons why I wrote what I wrote and some of the experiences that were going on at the time of writing and um, going deeper into some of the topics. So it's intended as a little bit of a companion to the book This Human. Um, if you do have a copy, you should um, follow along if you want um, or you can just listen and uh, hopefully it'll be equally entertaining and insightful. Okay, so uh, that's a good segue. We're starting with page one, chapter one which is about insight, harnessing your insight to create new experiences and explore new realities. Now, I wrote this book um, with human-centered designers in mind and also leaders in mind. So it doesn't necessarily leading and creativity and and that sort of thing as well. So um, on the inside uh, page of every chapter, there's a bit of a... Um, I don't know, like a bit of a visualization of the topics that are covered in each of the chapters. Um, and I've kind of tried to illustrate what the flow of insight looks like. And insight is the deeper why. So anything that's observable in the universe, I typically refer to that as a finding, something that can be directly observed. But when we think about, well, why is the thing that I'm seeing happening, um, that's where you start getting into insight territory. So um, the link between observations and insights and all the modifiers in between. This is what the diagram on page two is showing. So observations, we use our senses to observe other people's realities. Those trigger beliefs. So our observations trigger beliefs we have about how the world works. Those beliefs then inform our biases. These beliefs inform our biases whether we realize it or not. So we'll be going into conscious and unconscious bias. Um, and then our biases impact our judgments. So our biases impact our judgments about what's okay and what isn't. And then our judgments affect how we make sense of what we are observing. And then the way that we sense make creates filters that lead us to an explanation of the observed reality that fits into the world as we already believe it to be. So um, this whole chapter is about unpacking all of that. Okay, so here we go. Let's see how far we get to. I don't want to go for longer than 20 minutes. So here we go. Insight is the capacity to gain an accurate and deep understanding of the world as it exists for another person. We all have beliefs that inform our judgments about what is right and wrong or good and bad. These biases and beliefs filter the information we receive and can distort our interpretation of what we observe. This is completely normal. As a human-centered designer, you need to be acutely aware of your own biases and beliefs. You have to acknowledge and understand them so that you can come closer to true insight about the people you are designing for. It is their truth that is important, not yours. This chapter explores different ways of gaining insight and how to distinguish between perception 
and genuine insight. And then I've got this four-page spread. Um, I'm not sure if you see get the subtlety in this, but it says everything around us was designed, but the top of the everything is actually cut off. Um, and then at the bottom I've said so meaning, some meaningfully and some not. And what I'm trying to sort of allude to there is um, we don't realise that going along and making a whole bunch of decisions in terms of what we prioritise and what we sort of associate value to or what we privilege over one thing over, um, over another can be seen as a design act um, because through those decisions what you're doing is actually bringing something into reality. You're creating an experience for someone whether it's through your leadership or through or if you're a product designer um, through the design decisions that you make and we are always informed by uh, the way that we meet the world in those decisions. So having an acute understanding of how you do meet the world in terms of what are the filters through which you make sense of the world helps you become a more um, sensitive designer and leader, um, which I think is essential for this time and for people who want to be leaders in human-centered and impactful ways. Right, so page six. It starts with an idea. Insight and ideas aren't all that different. Ideas usually pop into our minds when we gain some new insight into something. And often, as we are hunting for precious insights in our research, they start as an idea. Perhaps it's this. Understanding and creation both start with the first hint of an idea or an insight. This happens so early in the creative process that you can't even communicate it to anyone yet. It hasn't taken shape in your mind's eye. It's more of a feeling than a thought. You find yourself waving your hands madly, but what comes out of your mouth is, oh, oh, ah, oh, it's the, um, and you have no words yet. Almost everything that has been created by humans started with the conscious realization of an idea. Some are tangible, like houses, chairs, cars, and factories. Others are intangible, like laws, customs, economies, and borders. When you are this early in the creation process, you need to protect your idea or insight. Give yourself time and space to explore it. Don't lock it down too quickly. You need to observe the idea as it takes shape without allowing your own belief systems, biases and judgments get in the way of its evolution. So I want to clarify what I mean here by protect your idea because some people think that you know, protecting ideas is a bad thing and that um, ideas are plentiful and should be shared. And And I agree with all of that when the idea is well-formed enough for it to be effectively communicated. What I have seen is when ideas are still at the feeling stage where it just it's kind of still living in your body and you've just got the feeling in your in your chest or it's just bubbling away in your sort of your, your stomach or your solar plexus or something – and you, you're kind of like, oh, I know that there's something here or oh, what is that? I've had this idea. How do I, how do I actually explain this to someone? Um, when you're in that phase and you haven't actually sat with it to go, okay, what is this really? What I've seen happen is people have struggled and, and stumbled with the articulation of their idea and someone has misunderstood the intention behind it and said something that has evaporated all the energy and all the potential that that idea held. I think that's very sad. <laughs> so what I'm trying to do here is perhaps communicate that and to just say, honour 
the different stages of idea development and in this book that's going to help you become resilient to those sorts of things. But um, yeah, sometimes we just need to let things percolate a bit. Um, All right. We need to be mindful about how we are being throughout all of the stages of human-centered design. The way we be affects everything we do. Now, this is a central theme to this book, obviously, because this is about how to be the person who's doing the designing. Um, Anywho, in this chapter, we look at what affects your thinking and being when you are working with insights and ideas. The intention is to provide you with a practice focused on understanding how you operate when you are doing your work as a human-centered designer or leader. You will get to know how your sense of self informs your work and be mindful that what you are designing is meaningful and deliberately considered. You will learn how to ensure that you are working with the truth rather than just your perceptions. Then in the um, sort of in the margin there, I've got being directs thinking, affects doing, and that then supports being. So if you can build this cycle around how you show up, how you meet the world, that'll affect the thoughts that come to you, which will then direct the action that you take. And if your action is in alignment, is in alignment with how you want to be in the world, the action then also reinforces your being. So you can set up this really nice um, positively reinforcing cycle. Um, Our being directs our thinking, which affects our doing. If our doing is meaningful, it also supports our being. All right, page seven, belief and being. Beliefs are like operating systems. They are the framework for how we experience life. Our beliefs are given to us by our parents, our culture, and our society, and they become so deeply embedded that we don't even realize we have them. Some of these beliefs are about ourselves, our capabilities and limitations. Some are about the world, what is right or wrong, possible or impossible. What we are told, what we observe, learn, and experience all gets laid down as sense making pathways in our brains. Some of these neural pathways get reinforced as we hear and experience the same things again and again, and some fade away. Beliefs protect us and allow us to function in society. They inform how we process information and draw meaning from the things we experience. But some beliefs can be toxic and damaging. These are usually the ones we've created about ourselves, perhaps because of something we experienced when we were very young. And Because beliefs help us derive meaning from our experiences, they become self-reinforcing. This is a crucial point for the practice of human-centered design and human-centered leadership, I'll add. If we are not aware of our beliefs and how they affect our work, we may seek evidence that builds upon what we already believe rather than seeing the truth of someone else's reality. We have to be acutely aware of what beliefs are operating and then do our best to hold them at bay. Now, this is a really important point. Um, I've written a lot. I just always giggle when I say that sort of stuff. It's a really important point to me. (laughs) Um, I've written a lot about um, beliefs and I've uh, created a course on thishuman.com, which is uh, designed to help you have an 
pretty um, thorough and intensive encounter with your own operating system, with your own set of beliefs. And uh, the reason why this is a really important practice, and it's not something that you do once, uh, it's something, it's a practice that you can incorporate into, so your yearly reflection or your monthly reflection or whatever it is that you do. And uh, it's really, really important because sometimes we will approach a conversation or we'll approach a meeting with a whole bunch of decisions or perceptions that are already fixed. And they may or may not be serving the situation that you're in right now. So being aware of what beliefs might be operating when you are fully present in a design activity or a leadership context helps you be able to monitor whether or not the, um, well, basically whether or not you're being open-minded enough. You know, if the person before you um, looks or thinks in a way that is challenging for you, there is an opportunity for you to just check in with what beliefs are running in the background so that you can actually access the gold that is inherently in um, almost every interaction, whether it's a positive learning or a negative learning. But to be able to access that, we actually need to be open to accessing that. And one of the really powerful ways of doing that is to spend some time understanding what your belief architecture is. And that's what that's what the course on this human is about. Thishuman.com is about. Anywho, okay, we're keeping going. Um, where beliefs come from? There are two main sources of beliefs. Some are formed from external inputs, and others are formed when we decide something about ourselves. Now, often we don't realize that we're deciding something about ourselves. By the way, it takes an incredible amount of self-awareness to know that, especially in the moment that it's happening. So you know, just FYI. Um, external beliefs come from the work, come from the work around you. I think that's supposed to mean world. I've just found a typo. Um, external beliefs come from the world around you, your society, your cultural heritage, your family, and your social network. They serve a very important purpose. They help you understand and navigate your life. Our beliefs shape our reality and our realities shape our beliefs. This is a quote by Anadea Judith. Anadea Judith is a, a medical um, practitioner. I think she is a psychiatrist, psychologist. Um, and then she um, had an encounter with um, energy medicine and spent the, you know, I don't know, probably the last 30, 35 years now um, studying the chakra system and, um, and melding that with her practice of um, psychology and developmental psychology. So I've read a lot of her work um, and some of the thinking that's in this book is informed by her work, hence the quote. One trick of external beliefs is that because they are mostly unconscious, they can become outdated, especially if you are not normally exposed to different lifestyles, cultures and societal rituals. It is important that you keep your beliefs upgraded and in line with current times and also your ever-changing self. In order for your work to be meaningful and not biased by your own prejudices, you need to be familiar with these external beliefs. You need to be aware of where their ability to prevent you from connecting with real insight lie. 
Self-created beliefs can be informed from an experience in the playground or something your mother said to you or just because you decided something about yourself is true. They are often a statement about what you can or can't do or what is or isn't you. Self-created beliefs can be energizing and help you and help to propel you forward or they can limit you and hold you back. Making them conscious and being mindful of them will help you become more effective in your practice. So in our current world, um, we have the capacity, I guess it depends on how you use the technology, but we have the capacity to create highly curated um, feeds of um, information that we read and uh, typically the information that we curate for ourselves is in line with our interests quite naturally Um, but what that essentially does is it uh, narrows our uh, exposure to um, sort of differing perspectives and and you know um, diametrically opposing perspectives and so um, our the way that we think that the world is becomes uh, reinforced because of this very um, mechanism that I've been talking about in my book around, you know, the beliefs that they, that evidence then forms in our minds. When you are, when you've chosen to be a part of the cohort of the world that creates the new version of reality for groups of people, and that for me is an act of design, um, I think it's our responsibility to make sure that we have the capacity to be able to see many, many different perspectives and many, many versions of truth and many, many versions of right and wrong and good and bad. And um, I think that we need to be able to exercise our minds in that way so that the um, decisions that we make in the act of design are as um, contextual and native to the situation as they possibly can be. Um, and I think that's probably the crux of why I think this bit of the book in particular where we're talking about beliefs and biases is, um, is really, really important. So the next episode, we're going to start from page nine, um, how beliefs limit us. So hopefully you'll join me again in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Talk again soon. Bye.